Thank you for joining us in Season 2 of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Hi, Joel. Howdy. It sounded like you, I did not hear your clap, but if you're, if you think you clapped and you, then we're good. I clapped after three. If you clapped on three, you didn't hear it. Right. I did clap on three. That's what you always do. Like rock, scissor, shoot. Oh no, I guess it's rock, scissor, paper, shoot. Huh? Rock, paper, scissor, shoot. One, two, three, clap. I think, honestly, I think that is the existential religious question. On three or after three? Ah, right. Yes. Especially for those of us who imagine a triune God. Three is the existential question. See? And we say in (laughs) Judaism on three three things, the world depends on Torah, on work, on prayer, and on acts of justice. So... See, my horrible but that joke. that was four. Torah, Tur- work, prayer, acts of justice. Uh, that's four. No, sorry. Work is pr- – the, the Hebrew for work is mapped onto prayer. Torah, avodah, which is work but also prayer. And then the third is gimme luz kasadim, acts of love and justice. Lovely. I love that prayer is work and work is prayer. Well, well – I mean, that's a whole thing on translation. It's not that the modern definition of work is equated with prayer. It's that the Hebrew of avodah, which in modern Hebrew does mean work, does not mean the same kind of work in biblical Hebrew, which is not what we're talking about today. No, but it's all interesting. And, <laughs> and we better pray before we do anything worky that sends us out to hurt one another. Mm. Joel, always with the smooth transitions. <laughs> That's me, I'm off my game. So I'm going apo- <laughs> to apologize to our listeners in advance. I'm used to doing this in the in my basement, and I'm now doing this in my office, which is fine. But I have the only microphone I have are my AirPods, and the noise canceling is on, and so I feel very removed. But hopefully, <laughs> intellectually and mindfully, I will be present. And I am usually doing this from the pastor's study at the church. And today I am at home looking out the bay window. So if you hear a weird rumble of a large semi-tractor trailer rolling by, they uh, we live one house from the corner where they go by and you may hear an air conditioner come on and off in the background. Um, but whatever, right? Whatever. That's not what this is all about. That's right. Holy cow, Eric, did God really tell us to kill one another in war? Is there such a thing as holy, justified, God-appointed war, where one group of people are sent by God with permission to kill, wipe out a whole nother group of people? So... I I can answer that question from my perspective, but first I want to make clear that at least in my framing, you asked two different questions. Did God tell us to? And um, what was the second part of what you asked? Does does God send us and tell us to kill other people? Ah, 
Right. So what I was going to say is that does God tell us to? No. Does the Bible tell us to? Yes. So one's very factual that you can look in the Bible. One can look in the Bible and see several, if not dozens of mentions or even actions where God either commands the Israelites to go out and get rid of a certain people, or God does it God's self. Uh, now, again, this this is going to be a repeat for anyone who's listened to this podcast. It's certainly a repeat for you. You know, I don't believe God wrote the Bible. So I can, in some ways, easily separate separate what the Bible says about these things and what God says about these things. Those are two different things for me. Um, so uh, obviously today we're going to get into those cases in the Bible, but um, but with does does the God that I believe in um, want me or Americans or Jews or any other people to go out and kill another type of people? No. What when you think of God, um, or at least God's uh, words in Scripture? Uh, giving us a command or permission or a suggestion to go take a lamb by force and kill people. What are the biggies? What are the big stories that come to mind where God sends us to kill? Well, even more egregious, I think, is God doing it God's self, because then it can't be misinterpreted. It's not like people misunderstand the command or something, and that's the Exodus. You know, God kills the firstborn of every Egyptian, um, ostensibly for a quote-unquote good reason, which is to get the uh, Israelites out and to force Pharaoh's hand, that Pharaoh says, oh my gosh, yes, they can go, get them out of here so I can save my own skin and my own people. Uh, but nonetheless, God does kill those people. Uh, and then later in the Torah, when the Israelites are, are about to enter the land, um, this is when God tells them to basically take out the indigenous people. And there's, there's a, a, a list of people that's oft repeated in the, in the Torah, the Jebusites, the Hittites, there's like five of them, and they're often listed together in the same order. I used to know it memorized. And, um, and God also promises that God will, will help with that and that the Israelites have faith. But, but those, that is considered a holy war from the standpoint of the Bible. And I think Jews often, and again, or not again, apologies, this isn't exactly the question you asked, Joel, but I think Jews sometimes don't realize that, you know, Christians aren't the only ones with holy wars, you know, with the Crusades, that this is this is something in Judaism's past that we need to contend with and pretending it didn't happen. Um either from a historical standpoint or even possibly more important from a theological standpoint, you know, kind of erasing that doesn't do us any favors in terms of our kind of intellectual, um, not, uh, yeah, intellectual honesty and integrity. If we just stay right there, um, God's violence against a group of people in order to create the Exodus and God's approved violence 
from those people as they enter the promised land. Um, how does God justify, uh, in the text anyway, the those deaths, those mass executions, those um, those war casualties? How does God justify that? I don't know that God does, not in the text anyway. I mean, I think there's an implicit understanding that we have, you know, generations removed, that it served the purpose of the Israelites getting to the Holy Land and becoming free or leaving Egypt. Um, but I don't think that God ever explains God's self. What, what about it in your tradition with these sorts of examples? Yeah, I think we think of, um, well, they're bad people. I mean, the Egyptians were bad people. They wouldn't let Moses and God's people go free. So Moses and God's people were um, were witnesses of God's violence against Egypt, um, even the children of Egypt, in order to force the freedom that God wanted for God's people. Um, and it, it begins to draw uh, a picture of a God who chooses my people, God's people, over those people, um, those others, the non-God people, the Egyptians. And that sense of violence against the non-God people is, uh, whew, you know, that's, that's hard. Um, and I hate it, but that's... That's what it looks like in the text. I think it's the same way at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses and Joshua are planning the invasion of the promised land. Um, they sense a birthright. They sense a, a chosenness of God that we are definitely the right people. And that land is ours. It was promised to us by God. That's what we heard God say. And therefore, if there are others in that land, we get to wipe them out militarily uh, and remove them forcefully from the land that is ours. We get to take what God gave us from the other people that are squatting on it. Um, so when I hear scripture talk about war, it usually has to do with two things, um, other people and land. And it it's always sounds from uh, those of us who read it with our fingers crossed that we are God's people as permission of us to kill others in order to have the resources underneath them. And boy, that... Uh, I see that not just true in scripture. I still see that today when American military or, or other places talk about war and casualties of war and land and resources. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, it's very Machiavellian in terms of the end justifies the means. It's yes, this is unfortunate, but it serves a quote unquote greater purpose. There was a, a place where um, God's people were allowed to kill each other. Halfway between the two we're talking about, um, God's 
killing of the firstborn in Egypt to God's approval of Joshua leading armies to clear the promised land, there was that point where Moses came down the hill with the tablets and found the idol that they had made. And there was a great debate between Moses and God as to how many needed to be killed to learn this lesson. And God threatens to kill them all. And Moses talks God out of doing it. But then That's Moses right. and his his crew pull their swords and kill a bunch of their own people in order to cleanse the the people of God from those who led the idolatry. That um, if I'm remembering that story right, uh, Rabbi, help me out. I might be misremembering something there, but that's the way I it resonates in my mind. Well, there's definitely places where God and various biblical ancestors argue in one direction or the other of whether or not to kill either all of humanity, most of humanity, some of humanity, I mean, most famously, perhaps, Abraham argues with God about saving Sodom and Gomorrah, that God wants to destroy the cities outright. And it's Abraham that changes God's mind that, you know, e even if there are 10 righteous souls in the, in the midst of these cities, God will spare them. Uh, but then again, I, and God does destroy the world with Noah and destroys all humanity other than Noah. Now, I don't know if I would classify that as a holy war in the same way that the Israelites getting rid of the inhabitants of the land or God getting rid of the inhabitants is a holy war. Uh, but but there, there's certainly a, there's a give and take of morality between the divine and the creation of the divine that I find really interesting, sometimes bothersome, but uh, certainly thought-provoking in terms of what is our role, not just in our own actions, but in God's actions. And there's such a difference to me between when human beings observe a group of people die, and we're not sure why, um, a plague, a sickness, and we wonder if God did that. And we wonder if it was um, a, an issue that God had with them. You've heard Christian preachers talk, for example, years ago when some of the hurricanes were hitting Haiti and Jamaica. There were American Christian preachers who said, well, that was God's justice on those countries. Um, for the way they were acting and behaving in the world. I, oof, I cannot get behind that. Although that, that kind of talk resonates with Exodus um, in some ways. It does. And, and I, I appreciate that you said that. I think too many of us don't have that, that, sense of difficulty and cognitive dissonance. It, it reminds me of something one of my favorite professors used to say is, is that once you take religion seriously, you see how hard it is. And that's why, that's why I sell painkillers on the side. That's what he would always say. I'll give you painkillers on the side because it's really hard. 
it, it's very naive to say, oh, God is all good and every, and you know, all God wants is peace and everything happens for a reason. What, one of the phrases that I know gets under both skins. But when we really delve through these, we see how complex and problematic they are. And to get back to this specific point, I, I think you are absolutely right. It does resonate with the biblical theology. And, and it is our problem and responsibility to deal with that. There are plenty of places in the text where, and I, I think we ought to differentiate, where the text perceives God as doing war against some of God's people versus where the text perceives God's permission for us humans to do war against one another. I, those two feel radically different to me. And, and I will just want to be clear when we're talking today about war, holy war, just war, we're differentiating the perception of God doing something versus the permission from God for us to do it. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a fair uh, difference. Yeah. So uh, you're imagining right there from, gosh, uh, Exodus to Deuteronomy and, and Torah, both big examples, God doing it. Um, to start the Exodus and God's permission for us to do it, to claim Holy Land. Um, are there other places throughout scriptures that are problematic where God either does war against God's own people or where God encourages us to do war against some of God's people? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about Korah on our episodes before, on any of our episodes, but uh, Korah was a leader um, in the Israelite community, and he rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And he had a few hundred followers with him, and they didn't do anything, according to the actual text, the, the rabbinic commentators say otherwise, of course. But according to the actual text, I mean, they, they were certainly upset with Moses and Aaron and, and really did rebuff their leadership, you know, the in a, in a very uh, tough way. Uh, but the end result of that is God swallowed Korah and his followers up in an earthquake to mm -hmm. kind of just get rid of them and let Moses and Aaron continue on. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of like, you know, it reminds me less um, exaggerated, of course, but when, you know, parents don't let their kids fight their own battles for them, and like the parents get involved, it's like God didn't let Moses and Aaron and Korach and everyone work it out themselves. God just got involved immediately. Mm -hmm. And painfully so. When I think of just war, like in Christian tradition, especially coming out of uh, Greece and Rome and the philosophers of that time, some of the the minds of Christian uh, ancestry, like Augustine or Aquinas, they struggled with with this too. Um, the violence of Scripture, and when God apparently does violence versus when God sends us or allows us to go do violence to other humans, they really struggled with it. And uh, Augustine and Aquinas tried to put rules 
on human beings so they wouldn't go too fast, too far to um, into military conflict where there would be casualties of war. Um, and like I think Aquinas said there are three requirements in order to to fulfill a, quote, just war or a holy war. Um, one, there has to be some kind of rightful leader in charge that you're doing it with. Um, you can't just decide on your own that you're going to uh, cross a boundary and kill uh, a neighbor. You and your people under the command of a rightful leader, king, sovereign, um, gather together, debate that together, decide together to go into war. And second, it has to be for a worthy cause. Um, there must have been some attack or, or some theft or, uh, something that happened between the two people. And then third, um, it, it has to be in order to reestablish good, um, and to prevent evil. So if those three things are met, they perceived it as perhaps meeting a just or a holy war requirement. Um, I, I don't know if I see those three requirements in scripture, though. When, uh, when human beings attack one another in scripture on the basis of God's permission, there's not always a rightful sovereign. There's not always a communal agreement to that. There's not always a an attack that came first from the people that we're counterattacking. And it's not always obvious that those attacking or going into war are the good and the ones that they are attacking are the evil. Sometimes it just, it looks like greed. Sometimes it looks like lust for land or resources or gold or, or access to water. And we just do it. Um, and we call it permitted by God because God wanted us to have that amazing land uh, close to the water and in the fertile areas. Um, in other words, I don't find Augustine's and Aquinas's just war theory to be backed up by the wars of Scripture. Yeah, and it would, did Aquinas comment specifically on the wars of Scripture? Usually, he was more interested in what... Aristotle and Plato and Augustine had said than he was in in Scripture, what Scripture said. Um, scripture was always behind him, I think, and I'm not trying to undermine Aquinas too much, but he, <laughs> he understood that occasionally evil is going to uh, assemble under a leader and is going to attack uh, other innocent people. And I think Aquinas was the one who said to be passive in the face of attacking evil is, is more unholy than to attack back and to defend the innocent when evil mm. attacks. So, and there's a, some kind of common sense to that, but this, my and your job on this season too is to look at the problem of the text in that. And I don't always see in our scriptures justification where there's a rightful leader, there's a communal agreement, 
Um, there's never a, a first attack, but only a response in attack. And there's only, we never attack f for evil, but only for good reasons. I don't see scriptures wars as meeting those just those requirements. So there are two big wars that I think about when I think about um, the the people of Israel. One is after the northern and southern kingdom split, the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria gets conquered in war by Assyria. And then the second one, I think, is the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem gets conquered in war by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder in, in your tradition, do y'all think of those as just holy wars where Assyria and Babylon were sent by God against the evil people of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? I mean, I think they could be interpreted as that. that I don't interpret them as that. Uh, and, and this goes back to kind of what I said at the beginning as my little caveat is what God says in the Bible is not necessarily what I think God would actually say or think or desire. If God even can think okay. and want and desire in the way that, you know, in the way that we anthropomorphize those things. So how do you, um, when you t think about the prophets, um, the Nevi'im and, and their words of warning against the people and the leaders, that if you continue to run a society um, that was supposed to be a holy, righteous, just, merciful society, but if you continue to run it this way, you're going to lose everything. And then they do. Um it feels to me like the prophets warned the kings of Israel and Judah and the people of Israel and Judah that they were so far off base, war was coming. And and then it did, meaning that that war, the prophets understood that war to be something sent and permitted by God. But for a change, it wasn't the people of Israel and Judah that were um, doing the just attack. It was the people of Assyria and Babylon. Uh, I see where, where you're. So one thing that the the prophets were were like gadflies in Israelite society. They 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 consistently wanted people to change. It they, it it wasn't even about God and God's action as much as it was about righteous action, and. You know, as you've talked about before, there's a reason why the prophets weren't that popular. Is because stuff that they were talking about made people, you know, no one wants to feel like they're doing the wrong thing. No one wants to feel like they're doing the unholy thing. And so the, the prophets kind of took a beating, so to speak. Um, but w what I find inspirational about the prophets and Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, who I think we've talked about before, he was a, a 20th century rabbi who marched with Martin Luther King and many other uh, tremendous accomplishments to his name. He talked about the, the prophets as kind of being like motivators, catalysts for change. And that that I, I really resonate with because that's about me. That's not about God's whims 
that may be toward one side or one people and I can't do anything about it. It's about my actions and how I treat other people. I, I just noticed that whenever we're talking about holy or just war, it's usually the people who perceive themselves as more holy or more just that um, allow war from us or from the us, the holy people, the good people against them, whoever they are, the unholy, um, as opposed to the prophets who very seldom encourage leaders and people of their own to go to war. Usually prophets warn that God's justice in war is about to rebound against us because we are out of bounds. We are not treating the widows and orphans and aliens right. We are misusing our power. Hey, David, you are misusing your power when you send Uriah right. and his army out to war just so you can have Bathsheba. Um, how dare you? And and David hears that too late. Like he already used war as a tool to get what he wanted as king. And, and in some ways, that's the end. David is the end of the great kingdom of God's, if God's people were this powerful, united, promised land, uh, house of righteousness, David is the last king to rule over that united kingdom. And his mistakes in leadership and in war rebound against the people of God in division and wars for the even still to today some people i mean some weirdos <laughs> say right that the reason the people of Israel or Jews still suffer today is because they haven't yet repaid for the sins of David now wow that is out there that is a space cadet theology but i it's interesting in one way to finally see war as not just something we are allowed to do because we think we're holy, but as war that keeps happening from us and against us because the whole world is not yet holy and just and right. Right. I'm trying to think if there's any modern examples of, um, and again, not when I say modern examples, I don't mean, you know, I mean, a, a lot of, well, let me back up for a second. I mean, some people would call terrorism a holy war. Like there have been terrorists who thought that they're doing the holy thing or what, what's the book by crack hour where the, the, the guys hear God's voice. It's not into thin air. It'll, it'll come to me. Uh, but there's a book by John Krakauer, the author of into thin air that tells a true story of these uh, young men who heard the voice of God to kill someone, and they did. And I mean, and this is this is the tragedy. I think of you know you were talking about the, the Aquinas saying that, uh, there was a necessity of a leader. What I like about that is because it implies that there's a communal agreement. It's not just one lone person or lone nut kind of doing something because they think that God wants them to do it. Yeah, I'm well, looking up the name of this book. Sure. And that term holy war, as we use it, we can see all kinds of places in scripture where where God either does war against a people or where God suggests we do it against those uh, those people. 
I love that you're reminding us that, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, some of the language of that was it happened as an act of holy war against the unjust America, whose, whose global economic and military practices have done harm all around the world. And now Afghanistan, we've tried to fight what we thought of as a just or righteous war against terrorism for 20 years. And we finally gave up because there's no winning it. And we tried to back out on the hope that this new regime in Afghanistan that we tried to build up and support would hold on. It didn't hold on even long enough for us to get out of there. It, it collapsed to the Taliban as we were backing away and people died in our retreat. Um, and from the Afghanis perspective, those deaths were justified because Americans had killed so many of their brothers and sisters over the last 20 years. And then we fire rockets in as America and our, one of our generals calls it a righteous attack where women and children are killed. We, we didn't even hit the target we were aiming for. We, we hit other people and we thought we had him nailed down and we thought there might be some casualties, but we didn't get our target and we killed women and children instead. And he still called it a righteous attack. So the language of holy or righteous around war is definitely a two-edged sword. So in, in what uh, some Christians uh, consider holy scriptures and others don't, and what other call the deurocanonical books or the Apocrypha, um, there's a whole story about the Maccabean revolts um, against Rome and what that looked like for, um, for the Jewish people to demand and expect um, some freedom and some justice for their people and what it looked like for Rome to quash those revolts uh, in a very violent way and for the retreat all the way, boy, to the final end. Um, how do you talk about or teach about the Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt and the Roman war to suppress that revolt. So, I mean, what's interesting, of course, you know, th this is the basis for our story of Hanukkah, that the the Maccabees uh, kind of reclaimed Judaism. I mean, it wasn't about it, at least the way the the Jewish story, re regardless of putting actual history aside for a second, is that the Greeks and Romans were forbidding us from practicing our religion, and many Jews were assimilating and kind of okay with that. And the, Macca the Maccabees said, no, th this isn't okay, and we're going to fight back. And so uh, it, we hold up, many of us hold Hanukkah up as this, um, a, a, as a holiday that affirms Jewish identity above other things, that it's, it's about the opposite of blending in and assimilation, that it's about our own unique peoplehood. Um, you know, the, the history of it is, of course, more complex because not only was it a war against uh, 
the Romans and Greeks, but in some ways against other Jews. You know, the, the Maccabees were kind of the zealots that were equally angry at the assimilationists, the assimilationist Jews, as they were the, the governing bodies. And one thing for me is that, you know, when we talk about holy war, or just war, that, that was a war among people. God wasn't involved in that. Now, it certainly played a role in religion, and it certainly is part of our religious history. Uh, and you can't really talk about Hanukkah without talking about the Maccabees in some historical context, even if it's kind of a children's tale about, you know, spinning dreidel or something. But it, 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 I don't use that story as a, you know, God, God let the, the Hasmoneans, another word for the Maccabees, win because, you know, the Greeks and Romans were, were evil and wouldn't let them practice. So I don't know if that answers or, or clarifies anything, but. Yeah, it does. But I'm, you know, if we were to go back in time, if we were to take our current way of looking at um, religion and governments and a war, just war versus zealotry versus terrorism, I'm sure that Rome perceived the Hasmoneans, the, the Maccabees as terrorists. Um, they're, they weren't super large. They weren't super well-equipped like the Roman army, but they attacked in smaller strategic ways in order to make Rome's life miserable. And they didn't have a huge number of people. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have the best weaponry, but they just sacrificed themselves in certain ways to say, no, you, you're drawing a line. We are not backing up. Um, now, what Rome did is chased them all the way to Masada, right, and and starved them out um, there at Masada, and that was their last stand. And they would rather die there than ever succumb to Rome's way of being and living. Um, so it's it's a terribly sad story, and and as much as we can be proud of them in some way for trying to stand on what they believe was holy. I have to look at them as using violence to, to fight back against what they saw was evil, but using violence that it ultimately led to their own demise. And, and I don't know how Christians or Jews anymore with all the stories in our background, whether it's Exodus whether it's the prophets, whether it's David's conquering of certain places and building a united kingdom, or whether it's David's losing it all to Assyria and Babylon, whether it's the Yahoo um, King Cyrus <laughs> has saved us and let us rebuild a temple to, oh no, Caesar is attacking us and running us all the way to Masada and killing us because we wanted the temple to become what we always thought it should be. I mean, the, the temple was rebuilt under a non-Jewish leader and destroyed under a non-Jewish leader. All these acts of violence, every time we assume that violence, war, is a God-approved approach, by the time the story is over, that same violence has landed on God's people and we aren't anywhere other than 
dead and grieving. I can't justify war under this God anymore. I, I can temporarily see why somebody thinks it might be justified in this moment. But it, yes. I, big picture, it seems to always rebound. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing we didn't explicitly ask in this conversation is, from a religious standpoint, is violence ever justified? Which is, to me, a different question than does God want you or to do violence? Uh, and that, I, I struggle with that. I mean, I, I do look at the Hasmoneans that rebelled, not necessarily entirely as heroes, but you know, certainly for standing up for their freedom and identity or, you know, the, uh, the American revolution. I mean, I saw Hamilton, um, or you know, what, what pe people who survived the Holocaust by having to do some extraordinarily horrible things. Um, but they did them in order to survive or like the, um, you know, the, the Warsaw ghetto uprising should, should the Jews not have done violence there, even though it was against they're killers, right? So I, I struggle a little bit with the question of is violence never, quote unquote, allowed from a moral or religious standpoint. But where I, I think I completely agree is we are, we as a people are way too quick to think that God is on our side. It's like, you know, I also had a professor who, who made the joke is like, you know, when I know someone takes religion, when I know that someone takes religion seriously, it's when they talk about that God doesn't want them to believe the same things they do or do the same things that they already do. Because then your God is just kind of a, an echo chamber, like Facebook, which went down <laughs> two days ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and for me, um, if I know God best in this person, God's word that became flesh in a Palestinian Jew. Um, he had some zealots in his crew. Uh, they really wanted him to build an army. And, and he disappointed him. That's, that's not why I'm here. And when he was attacked, um, he had one of his disciples draw a sword to defend him. And he corrected that disciple, put that down. That's not who we are. And when his life was directly threatened by the systems and powers of government that he felt were not growing just holy community, he was very critical of the Roman government as well as the temple government. Um, he was not trying to make them go to war with one another. He was trying to create wholeness between all the people of God. And he had room for Jew and Gentile to be included in the people of God. Now, of course, both sides hated that about him and both sides killed him for that, worked together to kill him because he said, we can all do this without killing. So I find myself in a place as a Christian pastor, if somebody decided they needed to come in 
with a weapon, I God don't forbid. think I could put, I don't think I could kill them back. I don't think I could kill them first before they killed me. Jeez, I think I could that's... put myself between them and others, but I don't think I could kill first, even if I sense that threat. I believe that about you. I do. I, as tragic as uh, we're, we're really going dark at the end of our episode here, but um, <laughs> I would hope that my nature and my approach, regardless of the sanity or right the stability of the person I'm approaching, I would hope that something about the self-sacrificial, loving, embracing personality would encourage them before they stepped into violence against me or those behind me. And let's hope that that never happens. And as Jew, as us superstitious Jews do, I'm going to spit three times and knock on wood and, and all of yeah, that. Thanks. I appreciate um, that. Yeah, of course. Of course. Oh my uh, gosh. Now there's saliva well, on the screen. Cut that out. I got a two o'clock and a new iPhone hopefully coming today. It's, it's all very exciting. And a new, uh, a new child on the way, as you know. <laughs> That's right. You announced it on Facebook so we can talk about it now. Yep. Do uh, the day after my birthday, April 2nd. So <laughs> Fine. we are excited. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to have as many as you did, Joel, but uh, I, I think two is a respectable number. <laughs> that's all right and next week we aim for the source of evil what is the source of evil is it god is it something else that's and we'll talk about the flood and the towers falling um does god put evil into us or into this world um how do we differentiate uh, the evil and, and its source this is this is going to sound like such a strange thing for someone to say, but this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So yes, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get into it with you, Joel. Me too. Until then, everybody, uh, keep sh it real. Shalom. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert. And on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.